Hedda Hopper speaking. I'm talking from the bedroom of Norma Desmond. Don't bother with a rewrite, man. Take this direct. Ready? As day breaks over the murder house. Yes, you'll read the big black headlines about Norma Desmond and this Hollywood scandal. But you'll never read the true story about the rest of us who were part of it. Me, for instance. Joe Gillis, a promising young writer from Dayton, Ohio. And Betty, that nice kid I met at a Hollywood party who knew nothing about me, but knew what she wanted. Don't you love Artie? Of course I love him. I always will. I'm just not in love with him anymore. What happened? You did? Well, we should have lived happily ever after, like they do in the movies. But this was different, because this is a Hollywood story about the people who make the movies. The little ones that you never hear of, like Betty and me. The great ones, like Cecil B. DeMille. All those who knew Norma Desmond, a strange woman who left her mark on all of us, who crossed her path. Has it ever occurred to you that I may have a life of my own, that there, there may be some girl that I'm crazy about? Who? Some car hop or a dress extra? What I'm trying to say is that I'm all wrong for you. You want a Valentino, somebody with polo ponies, a big shot. What you're trying to say is you don't want me to love you. Say it. Say it. Gloria Swanson, one of the great personalities of this generation in a role that comes to an actress once in a lifetime. Rising to the heights, William Holden creates a startling portrayal. And a new star is born in Sunset Boulevard, Miss Nancy Olson. Joe? Where are you? What's this all about? Why don't you come out and see for yourself? The address is 10,086 Sunset Boulevard. Yes, come out to see for yourself the film that reaches a new milestone of dramatic daring. The film that every critic says is a giant among motion pictures. We are big. It's the podcast that got small. Welcome back to the Essential Films Podcast, a podcast devoted to the discussion of the greatest movies ever made or the Essential Films. I'm Adolfo Acosta, and uh, I am joined on this uh, early September evening, night, whatever it is, with my usual co-host, Mr. Mark Espinoza. How are you today, Mr. Mark? I'm doing all right, Adolfo. How about yourself? Um... Doing okay, doing okay as as well as it can be in this very strange year that we have so far. Yeah, uh, strange is an understatement at this point. It's just uh, there's nothing normal about what's going on right now, and I'm still not used to it. It's been six months, and uh, I just I want it to end. Like, I just it can't the end can't come quick enough. I know. So the last time we were on, it was kind of the beginning of the summer. 
Um, and now that we're recording this episode, it's well, summer's over. I mean, I guess technically it's over in the September 20th or whatever, but the summer movie season is over. Uh, because what, what movie season? That's exactly it. We had no movies this, this summer. Uh, everything was canceled. Um, I know you will talk about it in a second, but you got to see Tenet today. Uh, and, and I believe this is the first week your theater was even open, correct? That's correct. So where I am in New Jersey, they just gave the go-ahead to open up September 4th, which was, as of this recording, this past Friday. Now, my local AMC did not open until today, which we're recording on Labor Day. And I said, okay, if they're going to open up on Monday, I'm going to go to the very first screening they're going to have of Tenant and get it over with. And then I probably won't go back till next month at this point because I'm still not too comfortable doing this. I mean, uh, it, it's a whole thing that they made with Nolan. You know, kind of, it, well, people were claiming that, like, oh, you know, he's forcing people to go out and risk their lives just for his movie and whatever at this point. I don't have an opinion on that. But um, so the good thing about it was that at least, I don't know if it's at all AMCs, but at least at my AMC, the one that I always go to, they made any screening before 5 p.m. 30% off ticket price, which doesn't really matter to me because I'm on A-list, so I reactivated that. But, you know, I brought a, brought my friend, and, you know, he got his ticket for cheap, so... That that made it worth it, and we were pretty much the first uh, the first people to walk into that Dolby Auditorium since March, because we were wow. the very first uh, showing of today, which was the very first day that that theater was open. So I I was more comfortable knowing that literally nobody nobody's ass touched this seat before mine. So right. Um, did you did you get any concessions? No. Yeah, I wouldn't have either. Nope, so I, nope. I'm I told them I was like, "Listen, we're not buying anything at this. At, well, we're not buying anything while we're here. So if you get hungry, we'll get something after the movie. But while we're there, I'm not getting diddly squat. I know that the rule is you can take off your mask while you're consuming food or drink, but I'm not going to do that. I'd rather just keep it on the whole time. Yeah, same here. Uh, and I'm 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 still too nervous to even go at all. And I really want to see Tenet, but it's just one of those things. I'm just like, I don't know if it's worth it, it, it to me. Um, and this is, you know, this is going to be the lost movie year, you know, like um, they even they already talked about how the Oscars are going to get pushed back, like, I think at least a month or two. And uh, they are opening up the eligibility to movies that premiered on on demand. Now, I think the. Um, excuse me, on-demand or streaming. Now, I think the caveat there is that the movie initially had to be planned to go to theaters, so it can't just be like any movie that was going to go on-demand uh, can, can qualify, but, uh, but basically they rec the Academy recognized that people are not going to be able to see movies like they were last year, and uh, on-demand movies are going to be qualifying, which is, an, which is a new... Uh, which is an interesting take. Uh, the summer movie season was canceled. All the big movies we were expecting. Tenet did come out uh, internationally, and then now it is getting rolled across uh, across America. But, I mean, Wonder Woman was pushed back. Black Widow was pushed back. Um, what else am I thinking? I'm missing something else, and it's another big uh, one I can't Bond. remember. Right Bo Bond was pushed back. Some of these to, like, next year. I think Wonder Woman is scheduled for next month, I think, yeah. and I think Black Widow might be next year. Um, well, well, from the preview I saw today during 10, they said November 6th. For oh, November 6th. Fast and Furious got pushed back an entire year. Yep. That's um, 
what's the other one that I'm thinking of? Um, oh, and Mulan just gave up and then went uh, <laughs> actually today, as of today, uh, you can see it on Disney Plus if you really need to pay $30, which I'm not. So um, uh, I, I'm going to wait till they actually release it on Disney Plus for real because I'm not paying yeah. 30 watch Mulan, no offense. Um, well, they, they send you a screener. I got my screener for that. I'm going to watch. I, I did not get my screener yet. I'm going to have to, uh, I'll have to, you know, go out and reach out to my peeps. Um, but I haven't gone, got, gone that far yet. Um, but yeah, it's a weird movie year. And like it's uh, COVID screwed everything up. And then did you hear today that uh, actually not today? I think this came out the last couple of days. Uh the Batman himself, Robert Pattinson, got COVID. Yes. So that got uh, that production got shut down. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, not oh, I, when I found out about uh, Pattinson getting COVID was the same day I found out that The Rock and his family got COVID at some point, and they were recovering from it. And it's just like, whoa! <laughs> just in in one day, I heard like like two like big time actors like you know getting caught up in this mess, and it's just it's crazy. Is an unbelievably weird movie year. It's gonna go down as like one of the years that like, um, it's like a lost movie year almost. Like we lost a year, you know, because I not only did we lose or get put or delay all these movies that we were supposed to have, but think about it, all production stopped. So that's gonna screw up schedules in the future too, you know. And on top of that. All these movies that were going to premiere this we, this year that are going to push back to 2021 is now going to make 2021 almost overscheduled, you know? So it's just, it's a big mess. Yeah, it's, it's like everything literally is getting pushed back a year at, where it could. And like you said, like I was just thinking about that, like I came out of 10 and I'm just like, okay, you know, we might get a couple of good ones, you know, the rest of 2020, like Wonder Woman, Black Widow. No Time to Die, and there's a couple other good ones that I saw that were previewed. Um, but everything else that got pushed to, like, next year, like, now that's just going to be, like, overloaded with stuff. And it's just, like, how do you, how do you even manage that? As, like, me, just as a moviegoer, I typically go every weekend anyway, you know, before COVID. I was going every weekend to see, like, one or two movies. Same and it's here, just, yeah. like, how do you even, like, plan that now? If it's going to be, like, like, every weekend I have a big release. Yeah, it's going to be very strange. Um we're just going to have to obviously deal with it as it comes along, but it's it's one of those things that, like, man, like, that, it really it really hit the entertainment industry hard, and it, obviously it affects our podcast, you know, like, um, our uh, uh, our Forced Perspective podcast, because that's the podcast we do on newer movies, um, so that's, you know, that's kind of, kind of screwed us up there. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the only 2020 movies I've seen have all been on DVD, on Blu-ray DVD or uh, on streaming. Um, like, I saw Birds of Prey on Blu-ray. I saw uh, Onward when it went to Disney+. Plus. Um, uh, I saw Bill and Ted. Uh, I rented that on streaming. So, like, there's no, there's nothing I've seen. In, I've not been, I think the only time I've been in a theater this entire year was when I went to see Uncut Gems on, like, New Year's Day. Nice. <laughs> so, like, and that was technically a movie from last year. So, yeah. And it's September now. So, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, and the year's almost over. It's just. <laughs> I know. 
Which this is when this is when we're supposed to get it. We're start like you know summer winds down. September's kind of a quiet month, and then October, November, December we start to get the we we start to get the uh, the Oscar contenders, and that's not happening now. You know, so uh, I mean, I'm sure they will. Like you'll still get them like on you know streaming services, and like you can rent them or something on iTunes. But like it's it's just going to be so weird. Not going to be able to go to a movie theater for a while. I'm just. You know, I just, uh, and I was telling you yesterday, we were supposed to record yesterday, I was just feeling really lousy, and I actually got scared that I might, you know, um, I might be, like, too sick, because I went and got a COVID test. Um, uh, I'm still waiting for my results. I don't think I have anything, because I actually feel a lot better today. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a, I'm not sure if anybody out there has had it, but, like, imagine, just, like, it's what you've seen on, on, on YouTube videos and stuff. It's, they literally just jam a Q-tip up your nose and, like, scrape the back of, like, your your head basically from the end it it sucks and i never had to sneeze so bad in my life um but it only but to be fair though it only took like two or three minutes and it was like a drive-through thing like i didn't get out of the car like they didn't let me get out of the car like i had to keep my windows up until they were ready to do the test they put my window down they stuck the cupid in my q-tip in my nose swabbed around there for about a minute or two and then i was on my way so it's quick if you have a free testing centers around you like you should do it because it's very quick um and I, like I said, I feel a lot better today, so I don't think I had it, but it was just one of those things like peace of mind, you know, is, is always a good thing to have. So anyway. Yeah, um, I thought about doing that this week, too. Um, there's, I think there's a day this week where I leave early from work. So and there's literally a COVID site, like probably like two blocks down from my house. Like there's a um, they have this giant like in my neighborhood, there's this giant like I, I don't want to call it a stadium, but it's practically it's basically a stadium, like a high school stadium. Where, like they fill the high school football game they do there's like a track for the you know track meets and whatnot and that's where they have a covid testing site now so it's literally just walking distance from my house so and i'm kind of shocked at myself that i haven't done it yet so i think now after today i just feel like just for peace of mind's sake i'll probably go after work one day and just get that thing jammed up my nose <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's 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 so weird because it just feels like you it makes you want to sneeze but you can't sneeze it's so weird yeah. um <laughs> all right um and then before we hop on to our our, our, uh, our main event here for our movie here, um, we, I did want to just take a few moments to discuss last week. We uh, we had the very shocking news uh, that uh, Chadwick Boseman, uh, who played Black Panther, uh, passed away from colon cancer at age 43. I just want to take a few minutes just to talk about that. That was shocking because not only it's, I mean, 43 is a young, is a young age to die anyway, yeah. but it's also he had colon cancer. No one knew. It's something that he kept very private. Like Marvel didn't know, Disney didn't know. Like nobody knew except his his family, um, and so it just came out of shock us in nowhere. I remember just I was on Twitter like right before bed, and I, and, then, and then all of a sudden I see that like trending. I'm like, what? That's not possibly right. And I looked. I was like, oh my god. So I mean, you know, we talk about classic films here, but I mean, it's, I just kind of wanted to bring it up because it's it was a shocking loss. Like you know, he was. I mean, not only was he Black Panther, he played a. Uh, Jackie Robinson, he played uh, James Brown, you know, Thurgood Marshall, like he was, uh, you know, he was someone that I don't think we, I mean, we got to see a lot of his work, but like, it's like we just scratched the surface of like his potential. Yeah, that's one of those things, like, they happened overnight for me, because I I remember I had an, because this past week, like, it was, was busy for me, like at work, so I was going to sleep early, and I, I forgot what night it happened, but there were messages like from my sister saying, did you, did you see this? This is like at one in the morning. I didn't see it obviously till I woke up the next day around like seven, eight o'clock in the morning. 
And then I go through, I'm like, wait a minute, like, he's dead? Like, I just, I couldn't believe it. Like, that whole day, like, even at work, like, I was just, like, it, it, it did not sink in that whole day. Like, how was he dead? Like, I just saw him in Endgame, you know? And he just, he was in that other movie that I didn't see, but, like, he was, like, like that detective movie. And it just, you know, he was, I didn't know how old he was. I didn't know he was 43. Like, he just, like, he was just this young guy. And the fact, you know, that he's he's gone now, it's just, like, I, I couldn't just, that it couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around any of that. And it was just just terrible. Like like you said, nobody knew about his cancer. He kept that very private to himself. And, like, what a, what a big loss. Because, like, like you said, he did have a lot of potential. Yeah, I mean, not just because he was in, like, this big major blockbuster, which, you know... Um... You know, we talked about it when it came out, and and you know, and and in like the year end, uh, like the year end shows that we did uh, about that year, that it was a, not only was it a big, huge blockbuster, it was the number one movie of that year, I think, in North America. I think Infinity War beat it worldwide, but in North America, it was the number one movie of the year, and but it also like resonated, you know, with so many people, like because you know, all these people of color finally had like uh, their own superhero and yeah i know blade blah 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 but like this was like the first time it resonated like culturally with with not only like america but like worldwide and uh and, and i mean he 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 really touched like the pop culture nerve you know what i mean he like really kind of ground in there with that film and he meant and meant a lot of mental he he playing that role meant a lot to a lot of people and then on top of that like you know we said you i think you you, you talk i think I, ha, I still haven't seen it but i remember you i think you had seen the the 42 movie correct like yes. that was one of the movies you had seen and he was in that he was james brown um he was in um the the five bloods movie that that just came out on netflix yes. uh which i haven't watched yet but i've heard is very good oh um, it's amazing uh, I think it's my favorite Bridges. movie of the year right now. Really? Oh, good. Uh, he's in Twenty One Bridges. Like he's got another movie coming out. Uh, that's I forget what it's called, but it's you know it's he's, it's it's kind of the release date is unknown right now. But I mean, the dude was really a, a fantastic actor, and it's just it's I mean to say it's a shame is an understatement. It's like it's like a a tragedy. Like we got I feel like we all got robbed. I mean, obviously his family got robbed, but. You know, we all like as a culture got robbed that this guy had so much more to give artistically, and you know now it, we just we only it's like almost like James Dean, you know, like he 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 had like these a couple a couple of films and then he was gone too soon, you know. Yeah, the, uh, at my uh, theater today at AMC, they I don't know if you know they they have been re-releasing Forty Two in his memory, and that was one of the five movies they were actually showing at my theater today. It was Tenant, it was Forty Two, was the New Mutants. It was that David Copperfield movie with Dev Patel, and then some other movie that I can't remember the name of. With some, it's like one of those like young adult like romance movies. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, but they were showing Forty Two today, which I thought was was cool, you know. Yeah. And and on a sidebar here, like that that whole day, you know, I'm reading you know tributes to Chadwick Boseman, and like everybody's putting up articles like which were very touching. They were very good. When just a little bit of advice to the listeners. When things like this happen, don't be that person that comments, oh, what about Black Panther 2? Oh, God. Who cares seriously. about who, who cares? cares about that? <laughs> like, the guy is dead. His family's grieving. You know, the, his fans are grieving. Like, who cares about Black Panther 2 or, or any other movie at this point? Like, just... Uh, whatever. There's a know? time and a place to discuss that. Like, exactly. Like, the people, there, there's going to be decisions made about that eventually. Like, now is not the time. Like, like not on. even a rest in peace. Like, just what about Black Panther 2? 
those people are ridiculous. Like, yeah, let the man, you know, let let us all mourn, you know, and let the man, you know, uh, rest before you like start start saying what are we gonna do about this, you know, comic book movie? Like, grow up, you know, yeah. you know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, uh, he's a guy that I think you know we could have seen a lot more, and it's just a shame that we were all again. I obviously the bigger tragedy is to his family and to his friends but uh, speaking as you know as some as a reviewer as a critic it's you know we just feel like man we were robbed of something here and like he was a great talent yeah all of the avengers actors had really good tributes like mark ruffalo chris evans everybody came out and said some very nice words about him which was cool yeah and and, and not, not just not not just about his about his like uh, ability and his talent but like everyone was just like he's like one of those guys that like like if I like when I die, I want people to be talking to, like about me that way, you know, like the way yeah. that he touched so many people, like on a personal level, like how many how many people like, like you know he he inspired and how many people like he was just such a good person and uh, and I'm sure you've seen the 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 clip of uh, of him with the Denzel Washington thing, how Denzel uh, actually put him through school and then like at his yeah. AFI achievement thing or whatever like he, he gave that speech thanking denzel and was like oh my god i'm gonna bust out crying for this uh so yeah it was one of those things uh so it's, it's a rough that's a rough loss man it's a rough loss yeah, it's a tragedy uh i mean like last time i could think of something like this um shocking with like a with like an actor that like had so much potential i think is heath ledger um yeah like that was the That's last time one. I could think of like someone was just like, oh, we just started getting like so much potential from you, and like and now you're gone. And, yeah, it sucks, man. Yeah. Um, but you know, rest in peace, Chadwick Boseman. Uh, uh, we're gonna move on now to our to our uh, main uh, main story, but just wanted to kind of uh, talk about that. Um, so, uh, as we kind of talked about in our uh, my little intro there with the "We Are Big" uh, line, uh, our our. Uh, Movie this week is uh, Sunset Boulevard. Uh, Mark, what is your relationship to Sunset Boulevard? Well, I'm kind of glad. It's I don't know if this was meant uh, if you planned it this way, but it's kind of cool that we're doing Sunset Boulevard like after the All About Eve episode because they were in the same class together uh, in the Oscars as well. So it's it's kind of cool we're talking about it because watching a lot of the uh, the uh, the stuff about Sunset Boulevard, you know, there's kind of this debate right now going on, or or maybe I don't know if it's still going on, but it definitely was back then about which was the better film that year. Was it All About Eve or Sunset Boulevard? And it's kind of split right down the middle as to you know which one person that people thought was the best film in 1950. But um, my earliest memory of this movie, though, in particular, just it's one of those movies that. You know, in, in throughout our history on this particular podcast, I talk about how, you know, I had the, I had the big book, you know, one thousand one movies to see before you die. And as I was because I was growing as a cinephile, like I would literally like try to go through each passage in the book, record that movie when it came on at uh, on Turner Classics, or rent the movie from the library, or find some way to watch it, and then just kind of check everything off the list. And that's why I really like. That year when you got me the revised version, I forgot what you was like a few years ago. You got me the the current version that had Gravity on the cover, which you know that was uh, <laughs> that was a very touching gift you got me. I, and I still have it displayed uh, with my movie books. But I remember like from the first iteration of that book that I purchased, the one that had um, Marlon Brando from The Godfather. 
on the cover is Vito Corleone. Uh, I was check going through the checklist. I was going through the passages, and I saw that you know Sunset Boulevard was there, and it just happened to come on Turner Classics one day. I, I DVR'd it, and then I just kind of sat down one morning when I was off from work, and I just I watched it, and I don't think it fully sunk in how great this movie is. It wasn't until like the second or third time that I was able to watch it that I really was able to appreciate kind of just the nuance and kind of just the the dark environment of it all. Like, especially like the, the, we'll talk more about Gloria Swanson's performance as we go through the show, but it's just like, she's like, I know Nancy Olsen likes to think of uh, William Holden being the linchpin of, of, of the film, but I think Gloria Swanson is like, she's the one that kind of holds everything together because she's that type of character and it's weird, but it's, it's a Billy Wilder film. So I, you know, you kind of expect to kind of, mesh genres you know here and there with billy wilder but it's like with with gloria swanson's character of norma desmond it's one of those things where like you're kind of put off by her and her demeanor but at the same time you come to feel like the sympathy and warmth for her because it's like you feel bad you feel you know sympathy for this person who is completely in an altered state of mind that is living in an altered reality about herself at this stage in her life and you know it it it's hard to be able to get that kind of emotion from an audience for a particular character. And Billy Wilder does a tremendous job of being able to do that because you kind of on the surface level have to hate her for what she is. She's not an ideal person, but at the same time, like you really can't hate her fully because you, you get sympathy from her and you, you just, you feel that you feel bad for her. And that doesn't work without Gloria Swanson's amazing performance. So, I mean, that's as much as I can say about her. We can talk about it more a little bit later on. But, I mean, when I think of this movie, like, yeah, William Holden's great. Uh, Eric Von Stroheim is great. Uh, Nancy Olsen's great. But, like, Gloria Swanson is it, man. Without her, the movie doesn't work. Yeah, obviously, like, it, it, it has to be. It all centers around, you know, Gloria Swanson around, uh, and slash Norma Desmond. The, the movie has to have her. I mean, it's it's all about her. Um, my uh, my experience with this film, my background with this film is, is you know, I told the story before, it's one of those films that, like you, you had the book. I had, like, uh, the IMDb Top 250. I was, you know, crossing those off. You know, this is one of the ones that came up and got got it through Netflix, the disc uh, subscription service back in the day. Uh, and, yeah, I just remember watching it one day and just, like, not knowing when in cold, which is all, which is such a good, cool way to go into oh, this film. Yeah. Just going into it cold. Um, but, yeah, went in cold, and then I was just, like, blown away by it. I was just like, wow, what this movie is crazy. Uh, you know, it goes, I mean, from the opening where you're, you know, the, the protagonist is dead and talking to you to, like, the very end when you're, like, Oh, that's where that famous line comes from. I'm waiting for my close-up, you know. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so, yeah. It, it's, Which is another uh, one of those misquoted lines we like to talk about. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, people like to say, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. It's like, nope, that's not it. That's not it. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's one of those misquoted ones. But, yeah, it's not, not much history to it other than, yeah, I just remember seeing it like 10 years ago or so whenever I was – not even more than 10 years ago, probably like 15 years ago at this point, uh, when I was going through my, uh, trying to check off all the great movies that I wanted to make sure I'd seen. And yeah, this is one of them and a freaking phenomenal film. Yeah. Um, so let's get to it. Uh, Sunset Boulevard, uh, directed by Billy Wilder, produced by Charles Brackett, and written by Brackett and Billy Wilder, starring William Golden, Gloria Swanson, Eric von Stroheim, and Nancy Olsen, with cameos 
by Hedda Hopper, Buster Keaton, uh, and Cecil B. DeMille. Um, the cinematography by John F. Seitz, uh, distributed by Paramount Pictures, which in and of itself is kind of a character in the film, uh, and released August 10th, 1950. Um, so, a little bit of the background to the film. Um, the Sunset Boulevard, for those who might not be aware of, uh, uh, you know, American uh, geography, is an actual real street in uh, Hollywood. Um, uh, and uh, it's it has it actually does reach back a, a long way back to the very beginning of Hollywood. Um, and back then it was apparently just a street where like all the all like the laborers uh, of, of Hollywood that were working there like would live like, you know, your electricians and your costume designers and everything like that. They all lived on Sunset Boulevard. But then as um, as as the movie industry began to blossom and blow up. That's when the movie stars started getting all this huge money, and then they started kind of uh, building huge houses on Sunset Boulevard. Now, and it, that's how it became kind of the kind of glamorized uh, version that we see in this film. Yeah, it's one of those uh, like you think of um, you think of L.A., you think of Hollywood, and like one of those places that you always hear about is not only is you hear about Hollywood Boulevard, you hear about Sunset Boulevard, you hear about Beverly Hills. It's well just one of those places that are just part of Los Angeles that are part of Hollywood, just part of California as a whole. That it is one of those places. Like me personally, I'm. It's sad to say I've never been to L.A. It's one of those bucket list places, just like with Chicago. I just I want to go there when they just kind of explore all these famous sites. I just want to just take everything in. You know, hopefully I can do it next year if if, if things calm down a little bit with with this pandemic. But you know, it's Sunset Boulevard. You just think of Hollywood. You think of Los Angeles. Hey, you got a place to stay if you come to Chicago. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Billy Wilder, who had been working in Hollywood for quite some time, he's a well-known director at this point. Um, it, you know, he, he mentioned in an interview that the he came, he kind of thought of the idea when he was like going down Sunset Boulevard one day and seeing all these beautiful old homes that you know. Uh, old silent movie stars were still kind of in, but they weren't really active movie, you know, actors anymore. And he was just kind of what he kind of thought of this, like, you know, what is, what's happening in there? Like what's, what's going on with these old stars? What are they up to? Like, cause they're not coming out. They're very reclusive, you know, like some of the people he thought of, like, uh, apparently Norma Desmond, you know, is based on a lot of different people, but one of those is Mary Pickford, who was very reclusive at the time. Um, but like, it's kind of one of those things that he like was kind of got his imagination going, just seeing all these big houses and wondering if they were empty, if they were these stars were still there, and what they were doing, like the very mysterious kind of thing. So that's kind of kind of how the the germ of the of the story kind of started to to grow. So uh, so he started writing the story with. Um, Charles Brackett, um, and they were under, you know, uh, a deal with Paramount Pictures. Uh, and as they start, as the stories are developed, you know, there are some instances in this, you know, film that are kind of wouldn't probably wouldn't pass the code back in the day. Um, for example, the fact that you know Joe Gillis ends up being a kept man, or as we some people might call a gigolo. Uh, so <laughs> when they would write the film, uh, as they were writing the film, they would only send like a few pages at a time. Uh, to, to to the censorship board to see if they could kind of slip some things under the under the radar, um, and apparently you know most of it got through a couple of like wording changes and went through that had to get changed. Not not a big deal there, but and apparently they they um they were they told them that they were adapting a story called the Can of Beans, which didn't even exist, uh, to to try and get the uh, trying to get past the censors to 
from looking too closely at the script. Uh, you gotta love 1950s Hollywood, the production code, and then, like, even in, in that time, like, you, it's kind of amazing, like, just what they were still able to get away with, even with, within the heyday of the, of the production code. It's just like, and this is, like, an example of this here. Right. I mean, and it's also kind of one of those things that, like, you know, we've talked about the production code on this show before, and it's it's one of those things that, like, there's a there's a uh, uh, an argument for it and an argument against it. Like the argument against it, obviously, is like, you know, it it it, lim- it limits your freedoms. Like you can't like have, you know, you can't have characters swearing or characters, you know, engaging in like illicit things or lots of violence and things like that. And and like if it could really hamper some movies. But at the same time, like they did because they couldn't get away with some stuff. They had to get really creative with how they showed things, you know. And right. I think that there's a there's a part of me that's like. When you're more restricted, you're a little more creative. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> um, but uh, so as it's you know the as they were filming the uh, sorry as they were writing the script, the, the couple different people and I always I always find this fascinating. A couple different people were considered for the role of of both Norma Desmond and and, and uh, Joe Gillis. Um, the more kind of fascinating ones that I found, obviously Mary Pickford because she was she she had a lot of the similarities she was at that time she was a little more reclusive um but she apparently she saw the script she was like no <laughs> um greta garbo as well was considered but she refused that norma shearer um was also considered but they they didn't even bring it up because at, at one point that during a meeting with her they realized that she'd probably say no anyway so they didn't even bother bringing it up um but uh, one thing that's kind of interesting, and they, they actually say it in the in the in the film, uh, there's a point where Norma Desmond goes to Paramount, and she's like not let in by the the gate guard right away, and she says something along the lines of, "Without me, Paramount wouldn't even be here. I, I created this. I, like, I'm the one responsible for the studio." And there's a little bit of truth to that because Gloria Swanson was actually a huge star back in the early days of Hollywood. And that's why she was kind of uh, suggested, I think by George Cukor suggested it to Billy Wilder um, to use Gloria Swanson because she was still around and she still looked pretty good. Um, And she was also a big Paramount star. So um, yeah, that's, that's who they obviously they ended up landing with. And she, at the time kind of got a little bit of a Norma Desmond attitude when she was asked to screen test. Um, obviously she did and she got the role, but, uh, she did not initially like the fact that she was asked to screen test. Yeah. There was a little snippet I, I heard or read somewhere about how, you know, she actually went to QCOR and she's like, you know, they're making me do these tests. Like, you know, should I really do it? And then he basically, and they basically told her, yeah, you need to do these tests because you're perfect for this role. And if you don't do them, I'm going to shoot you. Or something to, along those lines, but uh, it's a, pr- a pretty funny little tidbit there. You know, they considered a you know May Murray. I think on the on the blue where they talked about how May Murray was one of the people, and that May Murray when they told her about it, they actually started to rewrite the dialogue. And of course, with Billy Wilder, like with his scripts, like you you don't deviate from his scripts. So when she tried to rewrite his his stuff, he said, "No, we're not doing. We're not considering you anymore." You know, and just uh, different other actresses until finally that was when. Um, I think you mentioned that uh, Wilder was having tea, I think they said it on the Blu-ray, with George Cukor, and he said, how about Gloria Swanson? And then that's when it just hit him to just consider her. 
some of the male stars that were, were considered for this uh, were uh, Marlon Brando, which I think would have been way off. It would have been really wrong. Uh, Fred McMurray, uh, who was um, who Billy Wilder worked with on Double Indemnity, which whenever I was kind of doing my research for this, for this movie, I thought for sure we had actually done that movie on this show, but we haven't. Um, I, I can't believe we haven't done that movie yet. Um, and uh, Montgomery Clift, and actually Montgomery Clift was signed at one point. For, under a big under a huge deal but then he ended up pulling out because he had just done the movie the heiress which is a great film and it's available in the criterion collection um where he is in love with uh, olivia de Havilland. well actually it's another thing that happened while we were during our break oh, yeah. passed away at i think 104 years old um but he was uh where she was in a relationship with olivia de Havilland, who in the movie was like a much older woman and he didn't want to do like another movie where he like this young stud was in love with a uh, uh an older woman again and he pulled out so that was a whole thing um so they ended up going with uh with uh william holden well here's here's the story well a couple of things first of all here's the story as they told it on the blu-ray i don't know if you watch any of that stuff from the special features but the the guy i forgot i think it's one of the historians that they're interviewing they tells the story about how montgomery cliff agreed to do the role um and then like he went away to like his cabin for a few days and then he goes like when he came back from his little trip he goes, like, probably on the advice of his agent, he just called and said, you know, I don't want to do it anymore. So they didn't mention anything about the heiress or, like, him, you know, doing a similar role or the relationship he was already having with an older woman. I think he was having an affair with, with another, uh, an older lady, how it was too similar to that. They didn't talk about none of that. He just said, oh, he went away for a few days, and when he came back, he just had a change of heart and said he didn't want to do it anymore. So I thought that was funny. <laughs> well, you know... Different stories, I guess, but like it's at the end of the day, he pulled out of the movie, and yeah. they were kind of they went with uh, with William, uh, William Holden. Holden. Well, who... sidebar number two before we move on. Sidebar number two. Uh, now that we're talking about Olivia De Havilland, uh, just real quick shout out to TCM for the month of August. I don't know if you were watching any of that stuff. They did the Summer Under the Stars, yeah. where they focused on one actor every day, and the day they did Olivia De Havilland, like I actually like watched most of the stuff that they had because they had gone with the wind on at eight but then before that they had like this a lot of us her stuff with errol flynn like robin hood captain blood i watched all that stuff there's just such great stuff man oh captain blood is so good it's so good man like errol flynn has such such charisma man dude and they showed up real quick robin hood is one of those movies like you could play any like to any generation in any year and it would still work. It's such a good freaking. Movie. It's like the. There's no like I I, I think on um Force Perspective I've said like I've said how like they shouldn't make any more Peter Pan movies. We've seen them. Like we don't we don't need that story anymore. And I think I said the same thing about Robin Hood. Like we've seen the Robin Hood story. We don't need that story anymore. But it's also like after that after the 1938 Robin Hood, we really don't need other Robin Hood movies. That movie's perfect. That movie's so good. And she's really good in that movie. Sorry. She's really continue. good, man. And it's funny. It's like, you know, you watch Gone with the Wind and they kind of make her like, a, like Melody, they make her like a very homely type of person. We're like in movies like in Robin Hood and Captain, but like, she's, she's a beautiful lady, man. Yeah. It's like, she was, she looked amazing in all those movies. And it's just like, it was amazing the contrast between those movies and how they made her look in Gone with the Wind. So I just, I didn't realize just how beautiful she was. And so watching some of those older movies that she did, I was like, wow, like she was, she was a dynamo. <laughs> But yeah, but like you know, rest in peace to her. I think she was the last of the Gone with the Wind, and that was yeah, lost, I'm so sure. That's yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, living the that. I mean, those are good movies. Um, and then the did they show the Snake Pit at all? That's another really good one of hers. That one I don't remember them showing, but they showed the one. Um, 
in this our life i think it's called with betty davis i don't know mm. if you've seen seen that one i've never seen that one no okay i, I saw the i only caught the second half of it but it was, it's pretty good um i'm going to try to seek it out like to watch like the whole thing but uh very young betty davis i forget what year that movie is from but uh, they showed a few other, like they showed the heiress. I think after um, Gone with the Wind, like around midnight, they showed Aris the heiress. Is really good. Heiress is really good. It has a really good Criterion release. I, and they I, showed a couple other ones, so I can't remember. But it, it was a, it was a good lineup they had for her. Yeah. Right. That, again, I can't. Believe, yeah, that's another thing that happened. Man, this year sucks, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it totally sucks. Yeah, that's another thing that happened in our kind of hiatus there. Um. Anyway, back to uh, back to Sunset Boulevard. Um. So um, we talk about William Holden. He got the part. Yeah, after William Holden getting trip. the part, and uh, yeah, and really not a lot of fanfare there. He wasn't as as big of a star, obviously, as Montgomery Clift. He had been around for like you know ten, fifteen years or so doing stuff, but he was not like a huge star at the time. Um, and uh, but yeah, I th- but again, you know, he ended up working. The only thing that kind of I think detracts a little bit with Holden playing it is that I feel like he should have been a little bit closer in age to Nancy Olsen, but he looks like older than her. You know what I mean? He, he looks closer to, to Norma's age than to, to Nancy's age, you know? So that's what the the only, that's the only kind of drawback I think of of having William Holden in that role, but obviously he's a great actor. Oh, definitely. Like he, he was, uh, I can't, now I can't think of anybody other than William Holden doing this. Like that's how good he was. Yeah. Um, well, before we get into the plot, is there any uh, any other kind of background stuff you might get into? Uh, not really. I mean, anything that we haven't talked about, I'm sure will come up as we talk about the movie. So. All right, cool. Uh, so yeah, Sunset Boulevard, uh, one of the kind of the best uh, film noirs. Uh, I think this is the first film noir we've done on this on this show. Um, opens up in kind of like a classic film noir kind of way, like not classic, it's been done millions of times, but like in a, you know, with a, uh, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, a voiceover narration, you know, dark streets, things like that. You see police officers racing down the streets. Uh, this guy is narrating something. And uh, eventually we get to this, uh, the shots of uh, a guy floating in the water, looking at the camera uh dead it's a doornail uh and then we end up finding out that that is our humble narrator um and uh which i think was a cool opening opening shot to to start the movie on it kind of sets the dark tone of the film right away a couple things the first thing is when i first the first time i saw the movie like i guess it's a, it's a credit to how that particular scene was shot because i could not tell that was william holden i did not know i thought that was just some other guy and that William Holden was going to talk about how that guy ended up in that pool. And then, which I think it made it better for me because then when we find out that it was actually him in the pool, I'm just like, oh my God, he was the one that was shot. And then I still remember like watching it the first time and, and just being shocked that it ended up being him in the pool because you can't really tell that it's him. Like now I could. Like this, with this recent rewatch, oh, that's definitely William Holden. But like the first time, I'm like, uh, it just looks like some random guy, right? So. I guess kudos to how they shot it because, like, at least for me personally, I couldn't tell that was him in the pool. And, and it's interesting because as the movie progresses, you forget about that shot. You forget about yeah. the opening, and then when at the end, when it comes back to it, and he's walking to the pool. You're like, oh crap, and that's right. And then you get brought brought right back to it, right? But but yeah, like at the beginning, 
you know, it's it's a big mystery kind of, and you don't know what's going on. But as the movie progresses, that you get wrapped in the story, and you, you just kind of forget about it. But uh, one thing about this about this uh, shot is the way they kind of did it. Initially, what they were going to do uh, was like put a box underneath the water, and then kind of shoot up the camera up in the water at William Holden. But apparently, uh, Billy Wilder hated how that looked. Um, so they did something else where they put a mirror at the bottom of the pool and then shot down on the mirror reflecting uh, William Holden's body on the top, which is a very unique way to, to th- I mean, I, I love that ingenuity of, of figuring out a way to do that. Oh, of course. Like that was, I think that's what like, made it work for me because like, it, it was able to like get the shot he wanted, but at the same time, it didn't really like, it wasn't like a sharp image. Like you can cut, it was kind of some, some, uh, some blur to it. So at least for me, like I was saying, you couldn't really tell that it was William Holden in the pool. So that's, I, I think that made the movie better for me around that, that first viewing. Cause I'm just thinking like, who's that guy in the pool? Right. <laughs> um, but the second thing I wanted to talk about is that this wasn't supposed to be the original opening. Yeah, they wanted exactly. to do this opening in the morgue. Uh, and basically the idea of the scene was like, we, um, Joe Gillis's body was being brought into the morgue after his murder, and he gets put, you know, with the other dead bodies there, and just all of a sudden, the dead bodies start coming to life, quote-unquote, and just talking about how they ended up in there. Uh, but it turns out that when uh, Billy Wilder tried to test, do some test screenings, uh, I remember reading about how, I think he said he was terrified of doing, like, L.A. Hollywood screenings. So he wanted to do some test screens like elsewhere. Like I think he did one in Illinois and just other parts of the country. And with this opening, and it turns out that the audience, like he's the scene was kind of meant to be kind of funny because I mean it, it's dead people talking, right? But then the fact that they like laughed hilariously, like too loud, I think was concerning to him. Like, and it wasn't just a one-off. Like at the other test screenings that he did, the same thing happened. The audience would just laugh and laugh at the scene, which wasn't really meant to be that funny. So. At that point, he was just like, you know what? Let's just do a, a whole other opening because this is not the mood that I want to set. And and, and, a, and a wise choice, I think, because that was uh, I think that worked a lot better than than uh, than what we could have had because the, right. the the scene in the pool is, is much. It's a classic image, you know, and and it kind of kind of brings an air of mystery to the story. And and you know, having the uh, <laughs> having the the people in the morgue talk to each other that would have been weird. Yeah. Um. So after our initial setting, we we uh, we see that Joe Gillis is a uh, a screenwriter. Uh, he is uh, kind of down on his luck, and um, he gets a, a visit from two gentlemen. I guess they're repo men, who are basically telling him, "Hey, you are behind on your car payments. We're gonna take your car." Uh, he kind of tells them a lie to get them off their ba- off his back, uh, and he basically goes and says, "Oh, my car's not here. It's." Uh, you know, I forget what he even says. He's, I think he, he said he loaned it to his friend. He yeah, he loaned it to, to his like friend. Yeah, Palm Springs. Here. Yeah, so I'll, I'll get it to you when I get when it comes back. Which is, you know, he's just trying to get him off his back. But really, he had just parked it across the street somewhere. Um, so we already get the we get the the idea. Okay, this guy has no money. He's missed his his payments and uh, he's down on his luck. Right. Uh, we get a, a scene of him visiting a uh, Paramount. Uh, Basically talking about this new script that he's 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 written called Bases Loaded about a you know baseball player and like uh, throwing the World Series or something like that sounds a little hokey but uh, basically the uh, the producer that's working at Paramount he's he's not buying it he's he's kind of like uh, let me get let me see what the readers think of it and folks just just real quick I'm gonna take a side here for those who don't know what a reader is 
back in the day, and actually I think they still do this today, one of the jobs that you can get at a studio is a, as a reader, uh, and it's basically someone who, who reads all the incoming spec scripts. Uh, basically, a spec script is um, a script that you do not, that you're not hired to write. It's a script that you write from your own, you know, by yourself, and then you know, send it in to, as like a, a sample of your work. Uh, but they they read uh, the spec scripts and then basically critique them um, and say, you know, and try to judge if, if it's something worth producing or not. Um, so he sends a. He sends for the readers to see if his basis loaded script is any good, and then comes Betty Schaefer, who is uh, who's the reader for this, and she basically craps all over this all over the script right in front of uh, Joe Gillis, who's not not too pleased about it. Which is pretty funny because you know she goes, you know, oh, when I saw Joe Gillis was the writer, you know, I know I heard he had potential, you know, but like you're better than this, basically. She tells him, <laughs> and, yeah. and yeah, I, I love just like his. Like William Holden is this whole expression throughout that whole scene when she's talking. You know, you know, I read your name because you know showed you have potential, but like you know, this is not it. You know, and he's like, oh, thanks or whatever. Like he's just kind of very coldly, just you know. I mean, I'd probably react the same way. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, just, she basically just grabbed twenty off. something was just taking my work <laughs> like that. You know. Yeah, it was really it's it's a really funny scene. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it works really well. And he has um. Oh, he has a great line uh, where she says something along the lines of, um, "Oh, what does she say? She says like, uh, I heard, I heard that you had some talent." And he, he's like, "Well, that was last year. This year, I'm trying to make money." Make money. That's right. <laughs> that's so, a great line. Yeah. So, um, so basically, like, he's trying to sell the script, and 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 then she she leaves, and the producer, uh, Mr. Sheldrake, which is the same name as as the boss in the apartment because i just watched the apartment recently and i was like sheldrake why does that sound familiar it's the fred mcmurray character in the apartment um but uh he's like well why don't we change it to all women and maybe they're trying to get their fella back and this could be a musical and then like he's yeah. horrified that they're, like they're changing his script on him so so then he asked for like a loan and he's like i'm not going to give you a loan and and so he's basically out on his luck uh, so he he goes around and he tries to find like you know see see what he can do and he he tracks down his agent who's like who you know he makes a joke about oh instead of like out working for him he's basically on a golf course and uh, this is where I think the movie is like I think one of the themes of the movie and there's a couple of different themes but I think one of the themes of the film is like kind of a condemnation of Hollywood and I mean not only with Norma Desmond but with because with that they're condemning like how Hollywood kind of uses people up and throws them away. But with, with this, uh, they really kind of, he, they're really condemning how they treat writers. Right. Cause like, here's a guy who's like trying to work for them and trying to like show creativity, but then they want formulaic things or whenever he tries something formulaic, they want something more creative, you know? Uh, and then, uh, this he goes to his agent, and his agent's basically like, oh, I'm not going to give you any money. Cause I want you to be hungry. I want you to be starving. Cause that's whenever you can do real work. And that's such a, callous horrible thing to say to somebody yeah um, yeah you know he, he's trying to and then he asked for the loan from his agent you know like he was saying he goes like oh no i'm not gonna give you a loan go you know if, if you're hungry that's when you'll get creative and then they basically i think i don't know if the agent basically just quits or if he fires them but either way like he walks out of there without an agent so they basically have a fight and he walks off without the agent yeah yeah um so after this, he's he gets back to his car, and then the repo men see him. So they start chasing him down the street, and uh, as he's as he kind of eludes, he's trying to elude them. He gets a flat tire, pulls into the first kind of driveway he sees, and you know he kind of gets 
is able to kind of avoid them. But then when he get, you know, he pulls his car into like this driveway, he's looking around. It's this huge house on Sunset Boulevard, and he's like, "What is this house?" And he just he kind of just starts exploring. Like I don't know <laughs> why he thinks he can just start walking around this house. Um, but then uh, a a very uh, European gentleman uh, comes out and says, "You're late. Come in. Come in here." Uh, and uh, he's kind of wants. He's like he's just trying to say, "Hey, man, I'm just here because my car. I just need some help." But like they were not listening to him, so he's like, okay, and he walks inside. Yeah, and you know, he goes like, My dad is expecting you. So he's going, he's like, Okay, whatever. At this like at this point, she's going along with like whatever. So he goes up the stairs and then he gets called into like this bedroom, and there's this old woman, you know, just talking about, you know, you know. I forgot how she says it, but basically, you know, did you make it the way I like it? You know, I want like red linen on on it. And then he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then we so it turns out that this is he recognizes like, oh, you're Norma Desmond. You used to be a big star. I've made up my mind. We'll bury him in the garden. Any city laws against that? I wouldn't know. I don't care anyway. I want the coffin to be white and I want it specially lined with satin, white or deep pink. Maybe red, bright flaming red. Let's make it gay. How much will it be? I warn you, don't give me a fancy price just because I'm rich. Lady, you got the wrong man. I had some trouble with my car, flat tire. I pulled into your garage until I could get a spare. I thought this was an empty house. It is not. Get out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you lost your friend. And I don't think red is the right color. Wait a minute, haven't I seen you before? I know your face. Get out or shall I call my servant? You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures, used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. I knew there was something wrong. They're dead. They're finished. There was a time in this business when they had the eyes of the whole wide world. But that wasn't good enough for them. Oh, no. They had to have the ears of the world, too. So they opened their big mouths, and out came talk. Talk, talk. That's where the popcorn business comes in. You buy yourself a bag and plug up your ears. Look at them in the front offices, the masterminds. They took the idols and smashed them. The Fairbanks is the Gilberts, the Valentinos. And who have we got now? Some nobody. Don't blame me. I, I'm not an executive, just a writer. You are writing words, words, more words. Well, you've made a rope of words and strangled this business. <laughs> but there's a microphone right there to catch the last gurgles. And Technicolor to photograph the red swollen tongue. You wake up the monkey. Get out! Um, but you're missing the big thing is before she says that line, he realizes that it's a monkey that's dead in the in the in the room, right. and uh, and she, and she's like she's trying to like she had called thinking he was like a monkey undertaker, I guess, to <laughs> <laughs> bring a coffin for this monkey. Uh, but uh, yeah, so he he's yeah he he thinks this woman's already kind of weird. And uh, and then you know he he does recognize her as Norma Desmond. She gets really mad at him, like because she realizes, oh, why didn't he just tell me he was in the get out, get out of my house? 
And he saw, I guess at some point he dropped the dropped the line that he was a writer, but so which is why she uh, eventually, as he's walking out the door, she's like, "Wait, you're a writer. Come here." Um, so she makes him sit down, and like probably to like uh, like something you never want to hear is, "Hey, read my script." Um, so she she has all these stacks of like handwritten like. Uh, documents that apparently the script for Salome, this big, huge historical epic, right? Um, and she she wants him to read it and give him uh, give her his opinion. Um, but before we get to that, uh, I have a little side note on the uh, the monkey the monkey stuff. Um, uh, he, Wilder had basically um, uh, whenever John Seitz, who was the cinematographer, asked what he wanted for for the shot. Uh, Wilder apparently repli- replied, you know, just your standard monkey funeral shot. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I wouldn't even know how to process that. At that point. Um, <laughs> Can you be a little more specific? <laughs> uh, and another apparent, another trick that he did during the film um, is that uh, he, during a lot of the interior shots, he would uh, sprinkle dust over the lens to give the, the house like a kind of musty, dusty feel That's to it. Right. Which I think is a very cool trick. Um, another kind of little tidbit here is that there's a very ornate bed that she has in in, in her bedroom. Um, that is a uh, uh, you see the bed several times throughout the film. It is uh, that bed was used in the 1925 Phantom of the Opera, which I think is a a neat little trivia trivia note. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so she throws him. She shows him his Salome script and. Uh, she basically starts kind of one like wanting him to like rewrite it for her. And at this point he kind of sees a meal ticket, right? He's like he starts thinking to himself, "All right, I can maybe get a couple bucks. I'm down on my luck. I need some money. Uh maybe I can get a couple bucks off this crazy old lady by rewriting this terrible handwritten script." Right, you know, and then he kind of tries to kind of play her in a way. He goes, "You know, oh, I don't come cheap." You know, my standard fee is five hundred dollars a week, and that's when she goes like, "Oh, I'll worry about money." You know, so he goes, "Okay, so then I'll take this, I'll take this script with me, and uh, I'll go home, and I'll come back." You know, he's like, "No, you're gonna sit there and you're gonna read it. I wouldn't let, I will never let this script out of my sight." You know, he goes like, "Well, you know, you shouldn't let another writer, you know, read your material. He might steal it." <laughs> that's a great line, by the way, because it's so true. That's yeah. like a, like the unwritten rule for like writers. So. uh so, yeah, she literally makes him, like, sit down in the living room or wherever they are, and she's, like, watching him, you know, and she's smoking a cigar or whatever. She's, like, read the script. And it's just, like, and then, like, before you know, like, nightfall passes, and then she kind of makes him stay, like, in, in, there's, like, oh, there's a bedroom in the, above the garage. So she makes him, like, sleep there for the night with the script because she won't let him leave now. Right. Um, and then the next morning he wakes up and he finds that all his stuff from his apartment is now in in his room in this in this bedroom of the garage which you think is really creepy obviously like they went and got his stuff from the from his apartment and and the and they're like and your your rent was past due and I just paid for all that and like so now you're going to stay here you know and and now so so uh, so already he's like thinking okay what did I get myself into this this lady's crazy but at the same time he also knows like but this is a gig and I don't have any money so I may as well kind of stick around and at least do this thing, right? Right. And then, you know, you kind of show a little bit of the passage of time. He's sitting there with his typewriter. He's trying to, you know, doctor this script as much as possible. 
but you know he tries to make changes and then like you know for example there's the scene where like you know he's saying oh why are you taking this seat out like oh well you know you're in the market like you don't want to have that we have too much of you right and she goes no put it back you know he's like at that point he's just like you know what's my job here exactly? I'm trying to like fix your, your badly written script and you won't even let me take out this meaningless scene of you just walking in a market or whatever, right? So he's like, all right, fine, we'll put it back in. So it's just a, a lot of that going on. Yeah. Um, yeah, so she was... So now he's stuck here. He's stuck in this house. He's, he's rewriting this terrible script that he knows is not ever going to get made. Um, and you kind of just get it, you know, you see the passage of time. There's a scene where um, he's, uh, uh, where she screens a movie for him. And what's interesting here is that the movie is actually an old Gloria Swanson movie from the from the 1917 or something called Queen Kelly um, that uh, uh, Cecil, Bill De- Cecil B. DeMille actually did direct. I believe he directed it. Um, uh, well, hold on, hold on. I got to correct you there a little bit. So if you now the thing with Queen Kelly, it's a pretty pretty infamous film in a way. Um, so Queen Kelly was actually directed by Eric von Stroheim. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I got everything mixed up. Yes, okay, you're right. And that and I don't I think this was the one also that I think Joseph P. Kennedy like funded it. Um, and at this at, at the time like they were uh, she was actually dating Joseph P. Kennedy um, and. Um, I think in in the Blu-ray, like I forgot one of the features, they talk about a little story about how, um, because obviously like Eric von Stroheim and Gloria Swanson have worked together in the past, so like the fact that they were paired together here in the way they were was kind of like a bit ironic in a way, and it was, I, I don't know if it was intentional, but it was just it was kind of funny how like it was a small world type of situation, right? So they told a story about how when she was working on Queen Kelly, like. There was this one day, like, she just called Joseph E. Kennedy up and said, you need to come down to the set right now because there's a madman directing this movie. And he was talking about Eric von Stroheim. So I guess at some point they kind of made up, but, you know, around that time there was, like, a lot of animosity toward each other. Um, but they talked about how, I guess, in the, in, the, in the years before Sunset Boulevard, they must have just patched up because when they were working together here, like, they were, they were very professional. They didn't really show any animosity. So, I mean, logic dictates they must have made up at some point. Right. And uh, it, it was it was a, it was a silent film that was made in 1928. Didn't get released like till years later. Um, I've actually seen it. It's it's not great, but it, it is it is actually uh, it's it's available on Amazon. At least when I saw it was it was available on Amazon Prime. I'm not sure if it's still available on Amazon Prime, but I had seen it, and it's okay. Um, but it, it, there there was a lot of scenes missing from it, so they had to like yeah. put up those cards and say. What, what's actually happening in the scenes that are missing, you know? So it was kind of... Yeah, because they fired Von Stroheim, right. like, before the movie was over. So right. they brought in some other guys to, like, finish the, the, the script, but they added an ending that basically Joseph E. Kennedy and Gloria Swanson thought of for themselves. They called it the European ending or the Swanson ending, and that's what got shown in Europe when this movie was screened. Like you said, this movie didn't come to America for years. I think, like, in the 70s, it finally got here. But... Yeah, and then um, so so during this kind of screening of Queen Kelly, she she's get, gets up there. She's kind of gesticulating, kind of wildly. She's like, "We didn't need dialogue. We had faces," uh, which is a great line. Um, and I, I don't know if it was here or at another part, but I think it was here during the screening where she talks about. This is a funny little thing I noticed on this on this go round where 
she talks about how like we had faces and then this is why i think it was doing here which were like you know modern stars they don't they don't have the, the faces that we had you know like they couldn't pull it off like we could and it says maybe garbo could you know <laughs> what's funny about that in 1950 like garbo was not was retired she wasn't she wasn't working so like it shows how out of touch norma is that she thinks Garbo is still a star when she's not even a star anymore. Right. Which I think was a, I, I never, I, I never caught that on other viewings, but on this viewing, I was like, oh, that's kind of funny that she would think that that's a, that, that would be like, it would be like if someone's like talking about modern stars today and you talked about, you know, I don't know, um, Steve Gutenberg or something. That's like exactly, that. bro, that's exactly <laughs> who I thought of right now. I was going to say Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> You know, someone who's like clearly not in the public eye anymore. Um, not, I mean, Gar- Garbo's clearly much better than Steve Gutenberg. But you know, I just that was the first thing that came to my head, and that's the first thing that came to my head. But that's so <laughs> hilarious. Um, we also get a scene um, where uh, she 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 shows that she does have some friends, and they're all these older uh, uh, silent picture stars um, that he calls the Waxworks because they're in the, they're playing bridge. Um, the only one that I had recognized on site the first time I had ever seen it was Buster Keaton. Um, now I did recognize H.B. Warner. I still, I don't, still don't think I've ever seen uh, Anna Q. Nielsen in any anything. I, I, I know the name, but I don't think I've ever actually seen her work. H.B. Um, Warner, I don't think I've seen a lot of his early work. I think he played Jesus in King of Kings. Was it right? King of Kings? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Jesus and the King of Kings. I mean, there's so many Jesus. I didn't know if it was that or the greatest story ever told, but it was the King of Kings. It was um, DeMille's King of Kings. The, yeah, the, okay. Yeah. But for uh, his more recognizable role for maybe some other people is he was Mr. Gower in It's a Wonderful Life. The Life, that's right. Um, but yeah, so the, so during this bridge game, like you kind of see that like she's starting to treat him not just like the screenwriter for hire. She's starting to treat him like hired help, right? And she's like, get rid of this ashtray for me or whatever. And he's like, really, he does, but he's kind of pissy about it. And then um, Max informs him that his car is getting towed away by the repo man because they found it. And he wants to like, he, he wants to like get money from Norma now so he can go pay him off. And she tra- and she's like ignoring him. And finally, like, you know, he goes outside, the car has been towed away. And she's like, now what was the emergency? And he's like, well, they towed away my car. And she's like, well, it doesn't matter. We have a car. So now you're starting to see like, She's controlling, and not only is she controlling every, she's like controlling his life now. She's like, doesn't matter if your car's gone. We have a car. I can take you place. You can drive our car. Um, and that's like, now you're starting to see how deep he is in this in this mess. Yeah, I think even like the scene right after this, like she starts taking him clothes shopping. Like, you know, oh, are you are you content wearing the same like two suits every day? <laughs> and he basically has the attitude of, well, I'm not trying to impress anybody right now. Like, so who cares, right? So she takes some clothes shopping, you know, like she gets some like these nice suits. She gets him a tux, gets him a, 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 a top hat and coat or whatever she says. And that that uh, I'm sure you remember it better than I do. But the uh, the scene in the, at at the shop, where like what what is it? The, the vicuna? It's, it's a vicuna for her or whatever. And uh, he's like, you know, get 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 the option that's like least expensive. And then the the salesman goes to him, well, if the lady's paying for it, does it really matter? And he just has that look, like, like he's just disrespected. I love that face that he makes when he, when the guy tells him that, like, but that swarmy little salesman, he's like, well, she's paid for her, who cares, right? And he's just like, you know, like, he had more, at that point, he had more dignity than that, you know? 
Yeah, and he's like, as long as the lady's paying for it, you know, <laughs> that sleazy salesman look. It was really good. Yeah. Uh, that, I don't know who that guy was, but that guy was really funny. Um, but yeah, so he's he's also then moved over to the main house uh, because like his house his his room started getting a leak, and he's put he's put in the ex husband's room. He finds out it was the ex husband's room. Yeah. Find out that he's been married three different times, and um, uh, I think it's in this scene. Where Max kind of reveals that, like, um, you know, all these fan letters that she gets every day aren't really real. Like, Max is just writing different fan letters and sending them, and she's sending, like, these autographed 8x10s to, like, nobody, really, because it's Max that's doing because she has been forgotten. Um, and the, also, the other big reveal during this is that there's no locks on any of the doors. And when we find out that is because basically she's suicidal. She gets depression a lot, and if uh, and if there's any locked doors, then they won't be able to get to her in time if the door's locked. So that's uh, one of those. So now we we kind of get a little foreshadowing there, right? And I think uh, right after this is the uh, is the New Year's Eve, right? Right. Um, and uh, at New Year's Eve, he like comes out in his like new tuxedo. And he's he's down there with uh with Norma, and then they're, they ha- the house is all like it's catered for like a huge party, right? And then there's this like live orchestra band or whatever playing, like, and then he's like, and he starts dancing with Norma, and then he realizes, no, it's just the two of them. It's only going to be the two of them for New Year's Eve, and that's when he realizes it. it's at this point that he realizes that Norma is in love with him, and he's like, oh. I, you know, and then he kind of tries to like break it off in that moment because he's like, because he tries to start controlling him a little more like, oh, you're going to be doing this and that. And like, well, how do you know that I'm, I don't have a girl waiting for me or whatever. And, and she gets really mad at him, slaps him across the face and runs off. And he's like, forget this. I'm leaving. Right. So I think at this point he's had enough. He's taking off. He doesn't yeah. care. Um, and uh, he ends up, you know, hitchhiking. And, uh, well, actually, before that, as she runs off, you see her slam a door, and it lingers on the, uh, on the, on the doorknob with no lock on it. So, like, it's already telling you what's, what she's about to do, right? Yeah. Um, so he goes off, uh, you know, he starts hitchhiking, ends up at a, uh, a New Year's Eve party where he meets, uh, Artie, who's, who's, uh, Joe Friday from Dragnet, um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and Betty, um, who he didn't re- who he didn't recognize at first, but she basically uh, you know says, "Oh yeah, I was the one who called your screenplay crap," <laughs> um, and he doesn't really seem to like hold too much against her because then they start flirting. Like as soon as Artie is out of uh, out of view, they immediately start flirting with it. It's not just him to her; like she flirts back. Like it's pretty uh, it's pretty uh, 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 shameless. <laughs> That's kind of weird. Yeah, uh, when I first watched it, I'm like um, you just said that like you're his girlfriend and you're just like flirting 100% with, with, with Joe. And it's just like, uh, you know, it's just, it, it, it kind of stuck out as a little out of place. Like, cause she seemed like so wholesome in the other scene. And then like, even when you meet her, like just before that, like, you know, she doesn't seem like that type of person. And then like, just out of nowhere, like he just sweet talks her. And then she's like almost all over him at that point. Um, so, yeah. So, couple things about this scene before we move on to the next scene um there's a point where uh he's trying to get to a phone to make a phone call and there's these like two women 
like just laughing and giggling. And he's like, all right, I guess I'll go somewhere else uh, while he waits for the phone to be free. Do you remember that scene? Yes. And then they come in later. It's like, oh, your phone, the phone's free. And that's when he goes out and, you know, makes his phone call to, to Max. But an interesting side note here. The one of the two women that is uh, giggling, uh, one of them is an actress called Yvette Bickers. And Yvette Bickers was a, um, you know, she was like a kind of a medium sized star. She wasn't like huge, but she was, a, you know, she got she had a few roles here and there. Um, but here's what's crazy about her story. Um, she, uh, died in 2010, but people didn't know about it until six months later when they went into her apartment and found her mummified body. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's (laughs) Um, crazy. Yeah. I believe she was also, she may have also been, uh, the woman in Attack of the 50 Foot Woman, um, if I'm not mistaken. And she was also, I think, one of, um, one of the... I think she was also in Gone with the Wind in a minor role. But yeah, like she had died and then no one like kind of in kind of a Norma Desmond kind of way, like she had been forgotten. And then someone eventually came in to check on her like months and months, and months later. Like she died in uh, circa they don't even have a date because like if you look her up, it just says died 2010. Um, but she was discovered like in May of 2011. So like they, they say she, she, she was like at least six months to a year she had been dead. And it can, and it's kind of weird because it kind of mirrors Norma Desmond, right? Because there's this here's this old Hollywood star that had been become recluse, so reclusive that when she died, no one noticed. It's it's really sad, but really kind of creepy considering the movie that she was in. Right. It's, it's, I mean, it's it's like you said, it's creepy, but it's like it's kind of fascinating in a way. It's just like how it, that could even happen to somebody. Um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, anyway, so moving on, uh, you know, so they tell him the phone is free. He goes, calls Max. Uh, basically, he's basically telling Max, pack up my stuff. I'm coming to get him. I'm not living there anymore. And she basically, he basically says, well, Madame has has taken your razors and slit her wrists. So now he feels guilty. He bolts out of there without saying goodbye. And, you know, we come back to, to him and Norma, uh, to Norma in her bed with her wrists all taped up, and she's being very, like, dramatic and, you know, saying how, basically very feeling sorry for herself because she's been kind of, she thinks she's been dumped by this guy. And, and now he, it's at this point that he kind of, that Joe just kind of makes the choice of, like, it's they don't say it explicitly, but it's like, well, he doesn't have a job. He's not making anybody. Nobody's hiring him. This woman is willing to keep him on, pay him money, buy him stuff. He may as well just stay, you know. <laughs> and uh, he's you know, lays down next to her, and they kiss, and then you fade out to the next scene. But you know, they totally just had sex in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> um. So he finally agrees to be a kept man. <laughs> That's what they call it, kept man. <laughs> a kept man, yes. Um, or gigolo is another way to say it. <laughs> um, so time goes on, uh, and uh, Betty is actually, since she's seen him at the uh, a party, she had she has, keeps calling the house because she found out where he lives. Um, just his phone number, not where, he, where the actual house is. And Max kind of keeps running interference. Uh, but Betty's trying to get a hold of him because she like wants to talk to him about like a screenplay that she found uh, of his. Um, but he, basically, he's no one. No one's. He's. He doesn't know that he. She's been calling him. Right. Um, and then we get this kind of fun little scene where, where uh, 
Norma plays like some basically does a chaplain impersonation. That's really good. Yes, it <laughs> like is. It's a really good chaplain. Impersonation. It was like creepy good. Um, and she's like trying to entertain them, and it's like you can see kind of their life together, where she's like, "Where well, I guess that's he's her boyfriend, right?" And she's really happy with him there. Um, and she uh, Max comes in with a call. It's like. We have a call from Paramount Pictures, and she gets all excited. She's like, "They have my script. They saw my script. Uh, I'm gonna, you know, Cecil B. DeMille is gonna gonna come, you know, talk to me about it." And Max is like, "No, it wasn't him. It was some guy named Gordon Cole." And then she gets all mad because she thinks it's like some some flunky that's been calling her about like an assistant. So she gets pissy about that, and she's like, "But uh, but we'll find out who Gordon Cole is in a little bit." But uh, but basically now we're getting into like the next stage of the film where she's trying to get to into her comeback with the Salome script. Right. And then I think the next scene is when they actually drive down to Paramount. Like you say right before, you know, he's saying, you know, Oh, you know, it's someone named Gordon Cole. Like, you know, why would DeMille like, you know, send an assistant to talk to me? Like, you know, if I'm going to talk to anybody, it's going to be DeMille himself, you know, just tell him I'm not here or whatever. Right. So then eventually, like, I think the next scene, they decided to drive down to Paramount and it, it's a great little scene. And, and, what I noticed is that in every, like, one of the special features that I watched on the Blu-ray for this, they always mention this scene just because of how fascinating it is in a way. Because it almost mirrored a weird life, in a sense. So, they drive, like, Max is driving uh, Joe and Norma in the car. They drive up to the gates of Paramount Studios. And then the security guard that's there, the, the younger guy comes out and he goes, you know, you have an appointment? He goes, like, no, I don't need an appointment or, or whatever she says. He goes, like, what's your name? Like, Norma, tell, tell Cecil B. DeMille that Norma Desmond is here. And he goes, Norma who? And then she kind of looks around and she sees, like, the older guard. She goes, Josie. And then, like, he, he this is older security guard there. He looks like, oh, my God, Miss Desmond, I haven't seen you in so long. You know, you're like, and then so he opens the door. For, he's like, where's, where's Mr. DeMille at? You're like, he's on uh, stage 18 or wherever he says. And then she opens the door and she goes... She goes to, like, you better teach your friends to manners. Like, if it weren't for me, there'd be no Paramount Studios. And they'd drive in. It's just, what a great scene this was. Like, it's just, like, her kind of returning to her roots in a way. But it's also Gloria Swanson returning to her roots in, in, in that ironic way as well. Yeah, and, and like we mentioned earlier, um, she she was, it's kind of like a meta thing she says there. Because Gloria Swanson did have a lot of big hits at Paramount. So it was kind of like a, a double entendre thing kind of there where she's like, if it wasn't for me, there would be no Paramount Studios, just like you said. Um, so they go into Paramount and like, you know, they go to the soundstage and, you know, like some some assistant director or something goes out to Cecil B. DeMille playing himself, uh, saying, hey, Norma Desmond's here to see him, to see you. And he's like, Norma Desmond? He's like, okay. You know, <laughs> so they come in, she comes in, and, you know, she gets a little bit of, like, you know, she gets flattered because a couple of people are, like, noticing her and, like, oh, it's Norma Desmond. And uh, there's a uh, um, a lighting guy at the, you know, at the top of the stage. He's, like, his name was a weird name named Hogeye. Yeah. He's, uh, like, Miss Miss Desmond, it's me, Hogeye. And he, like, shines a spotlight, her, spotlight on her. And it's very, it's very, like, symbolic scene because, like, here he is shining the spotlight on her and all these people are coming in to look at her and she's seeing, like, the attention she's getting and she's very like flattered and like she's like ah yes this is where i belong but meanwhile the mill's like finding out why she's even here and she calls gordon cole and it turns out 
the only reason Gordon Cole's been calling is not because of the stupid script. It's because of uh, the last time that Max was on the lot to deliver the script. They had seen that he was driving this really weird car uh, that 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 Norma owns, and they wanted to use it as like a prop in a movie, and they wanted to rent it out. And so DeMille like now sees that there's this big misunderstanding because he knows about Desmond's uh, Des- Norma's script, who and he basically says that it's awful. Um, which I don't know if that's a uh, a damning Norma's work or or uh, Joe's work, but basically he says it's awful, and like now he's like now he's in a situation where he like wants to spare her feelings, um, and also not kind of let on that like it kind of basically doesn't want to make her think that like they're gonna work together because they're not, um, and the thing that I think is interesting is uh, he comes back. Um, he comes back to the set after, like, while while she's got this light sh- shining on her, and all these people are kind of crowding her and stuff. And right before he goes back to 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 Norma, he goes, "Hogeye, turn that light back where it belongs," mm-hmm. which is kind of a cruel thing to say. Like, not really thinking about it, but like a cruel thing to say because, like, basically saying the light is not for her anymore. Exactly. Like, I'm gonna bring up that little. That little scene too, because like nobody talks about that. Like none of the little featurettes like mentioned that part, but I thought it was like a really important, important scene. Like not you know after like he's taken in the adulation from like the older actors, the older staff, the older crew that are still on, on the stage. You know, Deville just comes along and says, "Hog, I put that spot like where it belongs." You know, it's just and then like that's just outward, outright symbolizing like you know her moment in the spotlight is is gone. You know, it, it's probably not coming back. So, and then, you know, he's just trying to, like, let her down easy at this point, you know. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm making, I got, I'm doing this Samson and Delilah first, but then, you know, maybe we'll see, uh, you know, we can make yours, but it's going to be very expensive. You know, he's like, well, I don't care about money. I just want to be back in the movies or whatever. And then, you know, he kind of, at that point, he escorts her out, you know. They say, oh, you know, we'll talk soon, we'll talk soon. And then as she's leaving, he, you know, she tells Joe, he's, oh, you know, it's all set. You know, he's going to, he's doing one now, but he's going to make mine next. And then you go come back to DeMille, he goes like, you know, call Gordon Cole, you know, tell him to forget about Norma Desmond's car. Like, I'll buy him five old-fashioned cars. So, like, you just, just leave her alone. Like, don't call her again. And it's just like, wow. <laughs> yeah, and, and during that, too, it's funny because now you know, because the audience knows that all they wanted was the car. And you see her there, and she's getting all her hopes up, and you're starting to feel so bad for her. You're yeah. starting to, and, and, and like... Like she has this delusion that it's gonna happen, that she's about to make this big comeback, and then like is this, she has this emotional, you know, talk with with C- Cecil B. DeMille, who's like trying not to lead her on, but he knows, oh crap, he she thinks this is happening, but he's trying, he's choosing his words very careful, to, very carefully to not, you know, to not confirm anything for her, but then she switches like, and you know, I don't work before ten or after four thirty, so like she gets this like <laughs> immediately from this like sympathetic figure she turns on a dime to like this diva like in a heartbeat and it's hilarious yeah um so uh, while that's all going on joe actually goes to visit betty uh in her office and uh basically she tells her that uh uh she she tells him that you know there's a story that that he had that she only likes like a little bit like a, a little part of but she thinks that they can they can expand it into this bigger thing 
And he's like, look, I'm not writing anymore. Like, it's yours. You can have it. Do whatever you want with it. You know, and she's like, no, I really want to work with you. But, but he leaves basically telling her you can have it. But it kind of gets his gears, like, thinking a little bit, right? Because he, he does kind of feel something for Betty. He knows, like, he's, she kind of ignites his creative juices a little bit. And also, like, he, he's fallen for her as well. Right. So in the meantime, you know, like, you know, Norma's in this delusion that she's about to go back to work soon. <laughs> so she keeps going, undergoing like all these like rigorous, like, you know, youth treatments, beauty treatments, you know, these massages. He's like, you know, they're putting stuff on her face constantly. So just to make herself look younger, you know, and then while that's happening, like Joe, like you said, he's sneaking off at night um, to kind of rewrite the script with Betty you know, because like you said, like all of a sudden, like, he's feeling creative again. Maybe it's something to do with her or the situation or whatever. But at, at this point, he's just, you know, he wants to kind of explore this. So he's sneaking off at night, you know, going to her office and they stay up all night trying to do the script. Uh, and then eventually Max discovers this. Yeah, he does discover this. Um, but before we get there, he he uh, and he kind of reveals something big. But before that. Um, I believe like they, they have this little scene where Joe and Betty are talking to each other and Betty kind of reveals like, yeah, I grew up close by to here. My father was an electrician. My mother was a, I think she says like a hairdresser or something. And, you know, I, I grew up in the business and, you know, they, they wanted me to be a, a big star. And like, I got all these acting lessons and dancing lessons and all this stuff. And uh, I got my nose fixed because it was, you know, a little crooked, but uh, but uh, you know, I didn't. I just ended up not going anywhere. But you know, I, I ended up working my way up. Now I'm a reader, and now I want to become a screenwriter. And so, like you get, so it's, you get these two views of the women in, in 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 Joe's life. You have Norma, who is so deluded that she thinks she's going to go back into pictures, and the only thing she'll accept is stardom. The only thing she she will she accepts is she will accept is going back to her to her her previous position as like Hollywood's biggest star. And then you have Betty. Who's like, okay, I couldn't make it as that, but I love this business. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be in this business, even if it's not as a Hollywood actress. Like, I want to be a writer. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to do everything I can to do that. So you have one who's like deluded, and one who's very sensible and practical. Exactly. So it's it, great contrast between the, the two characters, and like they're in the same business, but just two different uh, ways and personalities of looking at it. Yeah, and also, like, you have the, like, you can also have, like, they both kind of represent a different kind of screenwriter, right? Like, Joe is, like, the hack at this point. Joe is the sellout. He's the guy who's going to be willing to do whatever it is for a paycheck, whereas Betty is the, no, I want to create art. I want to do something meaningful. I want to do something good. Like, I don't, like, I'm not, if it's not good, I don't want to do it. I don't want to sell out. And it's just, and the, and the, so you have, like, the two kind of conflicting types of screenwriters there. Right. Um, and then, so then, like you said, he comes back, Max catches him, and uh, basically he's, he wants him to, like, be careful with her feelings. And uh, it's revealed during this conversation that not only is Max one of her ex-husbands, but he is one of her first directors. And in such a creepy kind of moment, he's like, after she left me, life was unendurable. So I did anything I could to be in her life, even, like, being her servant. And it's just one of those things like, all right, things are getting really weird now. And what makes it weird is, again, in this, like, kind of meta fashion, like, you know, Eric Von Strohheim 
directed Gloria Swanson and I think a, a handful of movies. And I think after the the whole Queen Kelly debacle is when like his career kind of tanked as a director. So it's just again, it's just this meta thing with 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 this movie where like yeah, this is this the Max character and the Eric and Eric von Stroheim are like kind of mirror images of each other in a way. It's just it's very weird. Yeah. Um. We go back to more writing sessions with with Joe and Betty, and Betty basically admits to Joe that. You know, Artie wants to marry her. Her boyfriend wants to marry her, but she doesn't want to do it because she's in love with Joe now. And Joe basically is in this, it feels the same way. And, you know, they kiss. Um, and then we cut to the next. Oh, wait. Is this where she was? Is this where Norma finds the screenplay or is it before that? I think it's actually before. Um, whatever but, before Matt... but before we, uh, we get to that, I just want to do a quick little tidbit um, about the scene. Like, so, you know, with Betty and Joe, they kiss and everything, right? So there's a great little story that Nancy tells on the on one of the documentaries, right, where they're doing that scene. And right before they shoot it, Billy Wilder comes up to them and he says, listen, you know, I'm going to ask you to, once you guys embrace and start kissing, to hold that position until I say cut. Now, you're going to think it's going to feel like an eternity, but the reason I want it that long is because I want to use that scene to kind of dissolve into another scene. So I need the length, right? So, yeah, you might feel like it's an eternity, but trust me, it's not going to be that long. I promise. It's like, hold that position until I say cut, right? Well, that well, it turns out that day that they were shooting that scene, William Holden brought his wife or his girlfriend or whoever. Oh, I have was. heard this, yeah. He brought her to the set and she actually watched as that scene was filmed, right? So they're doing that scene and like they're they're kissing and they're kissing and they're kissing. Nancy's thinking like, oh, my God, this is taking forever. Right. And then all of a sudden you don't hear Billy, but you hear William Holden's wife go, cut, damn it, cut, cut right now. <laughs> so that's just that, that's a great little story there. That's a good story. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so they're both clearly in love with each other. Norma discovers uh, that one of the pages of the script that. uh that uh, Joe has been writing, and he he she she tracks down who Betty Schaefer is because her name is on the is on one of the pages, um, and uh, she starts calling Betty and starts like basically saying like, oh I know who he is I know who he lives with you know are you sure you don't want to know find out what's going on, but the thing is Joe overhears this and he's like at this point Joe's like I can't live this life anymore so he like picks up the phone and basically says hey I'm it's Joe I'm here I need you to come to this address so you can find out the whole truth. So that now this is where like things are just gonna go way downhill real fast. Yeah, and then you know even Betty's like kind of unsure if she even wants to go <laughs> to the address that Joe gave her. But eventually, like she has a friend take her. You know, she even says like, "You want me to go inside with you?" Like, no, I'm just I'm gonna go by myself, right? So she goes in, and Joe just basically kind of just accepts what he is, just very kind of smugly, just kind of takes her around the house. So like, oh, you know. This is the living room. This, you know, Valentino made these, this dance floor, you know, or whatever he says. And then, you know, he shows her the living room with all her portraits. You know, yeah, you know, the whole house is like this, you know. And that's just me. You know, I'm, and I forgot how he says it. Like, he's basically just kind of embracing his role as the kept man as the gigolo to, like, her horror at this point. And the thing is, she's, like, she's trying to, like, give him an out. She's like, no, you know what? I didn't see this. Just pack your stuff. Let's go and let's get out of here. And it's... 
she tries to give him an out, but it's like it's it's he has decided not not that he basically is that sellout. Like he is a sellout, and he doesn't want to like corrupt her, right? right. So he decides he's just gonna let her go and does everything he can to let her go, and she does. She walks out of his life. And basically, he's like, he goes upstairs, and Norma thinks that he, she did it for him, for her. But really, he's packing up his stuff, and he's going to go back to, like, Ohio to, like, work at a crummy newspaper. Because, like, he doesn't want to be a sellout anymore, but he doesn't want to, like, but he doesn't think he can really do be with Betty, like, on his own merit. You know, so, like, now, like, and then Norma starts to really kind of go crazy at this point she starts saying starts good she starts like uh, uh insinuating she's gonna commit suicide because she bought a gun but he doesn't he's not having it he's still gonna leave yeah uh, he basically blows the whole thing up he tells her you know it's gonna be no comeback you know did no want nothing to do with your script you know max has been the one writing your letters like he literally just blows up her reality in front of her <laughs> yeah and then it basically puts her in like this fugue state right like so she doesn't even like know what, what reality is anymore and she's like and he's like she's like no one leaves a star you know so he, he walks out the door and then she she shoots him as he's walking out the door and she shoots him again and then that's when you see the pool and he stumbles in the pool one more time and he falls in the pool just how he was at the beginning of the film yeah so she kills joe and then now we're kind of right back at the beginning uh and we're seeing Norma in her room, like in front of her mirror, as if she's putting on makeup for a for a, to be get ready for the for the for a movie shoot. And there's these detectives just asking her, "What happened? Did you know this man? Uh, was there a quarrel? Was was he a thief? Was you know?" And and she's just not answering them. And uh, basically, she's still talking like if it's a movie shoot. And and Max kind of has the idea like, "Hey, maybe we can." She, if she thinks that there's cameras downstairs, and because their cameras are downstairs from like newsreel footage, the newsreel, and they're yeah. actually from Paramount, like like it'll be a way to get her to come downstairs. So she's like, so that kind of gets her up and going down, and she gets to the top. All these people are looking at her. There's cameras rolling. You know, Max even says, you know, lights, camera, action, and uh, and then she's like, what scene is this? He's like, you're coming down the palace staircase. You know, she comes down and then she she stops and gives this little speech about how she's so happy to be back in front of everybody and you know and all the people out there in the dark and then she gives her final line and the final line of the movie all right mr mill i'm ready for my close-up as she walks towards the screen and we fade to black yep that's it <laughs> um ending on one of the most famous lines of all time uh a line that everyone knows even if they don't know what it's from um, and like you said earlier, uh, an often misquoted line. Uh, <laughs> and one of those things that, like, it's a, uh, a play it again, Sam kind of kind of line. Exactly. Uh, a couple things about the about this film. Uh, apparently, Billy Wilder had a viewing party uh, with some of his uh, contemporaries, uh, and Barbara Stanwyck, uh, according to this, uh, knelt to kiss the hem of Gloria Swanson's skirt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mary Pickford saw it, and then she just couldn't show herself because she was too overcome by, uh, by the film itself. And then Louis B. Mayer had the best reaction, uh, and by best I mean worst. Uh, he basically said that, um, oh, let me read it because I have it written down. Uh, da, da, da. You have disgraced the industry that made and fed you. You should be tarred and feathered and run out of Hollywood. 
you befouled your own nest. You should be kicked out of this country. And I'm quoting, so, you know, earmuffs for the kitties, uh, you goddamn foreigner SOB. Um, <laughs> and then what else happened here? And then basically, uh, now keep in mind that when he says this, Louis, Louis B. Mayer is Jewish. Um, he tells Billy Wilder, who is also Jewish, that he should have been sent back to Germany uh, during <laughs> the Holocaust. <laughs> to which uh, Billy Wilder apparently just told my uh, Louis B. Mayer, again, earmuff for the kitties, go fuck yourself. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah that's, I think better. was an interesting, uh, interesting uh, reaction. Um, a couple kind of things I want to talk about here. Um, as I was watching this film, does it kind of give you like a little bit of a um, a creepy horror vibe. Like I know that's not it's not a horror movie. I don't think it's a horror movie. But there are just some scenes that like kind of creep you out with like like you know you have the the wind coming through the organ that gives it that creepy vibe. Just like the the whole ending with with uh, Norma walking towards the scream. This kind of sometimes it just kind of gives off that vibe. What do you think? Oh, I agree with that. Like uh, this recent screen that I watched, it was just one of those. You know, it just I felt very uneasy and. Not to say that, like, I only feel like I only feel like this during horror movies, but it's just, you know, when you get that, like, you, you see things happening or you see characters acting a certain way or you see certain shots, the way they're, that they're shot, or you see, like, um, certain dialogue, it just that creates a, a mood and you start feeling a certain way. Um, I mean, I, I've talked about, you know, especially like on Force Perspective, like movies like Hereditary where I felt a certain way, or, like, other movies. I mean, everything's like a horror movie, but, you know, just sometimes, like, just the, the mood that the, that the directors create and, and that the actors kind of nurture kind of does give off, like, this very uncomfortable vibe. It's not necessarily a horror vibe, but it has, like, a horror element to it that, you know, kind of gives it most of its power. So I definitely agree with you there. Yeah, uh, apparently... Um... The uh, famous movie critic Richard Corliss uh, called it called it the definitive Hollywood horror movie, which I think is interesting because it, it, for for someone who's in the industry, especially if you're an actor or a writer, I think this would be kind of a horror movie for you. You know right. the way that they're that the people in this film are treated, and it's it is kind of a condemnation of Hollywood, right? Because um, you're condemning the way they treat uh, actors and the way they treat writers, like with Norma. Like, she was a big star. And then once they no longer had a use for her, she was basically cast out. Once she got old, basically, and she was no longer young, she was cast out. And they had no longer needed her. They replaced her with new pretty faces. And and then, which kind of has driven her mad. And whenever they they put her on this pedestal for so long, making her this big star, that she wasn't prepared for, like, the downfall. And right. so that she still thinks that she's this, as important as she used to be. Right. And it's just, it's one of those, uh, it's one of those things that if you're in the business, like you kind of, you see that and you're like, hmm, you know, like it, it, nobody wants to end up that way if you're in the business. But, you know, unfortunately, not, not that like they become crazy and shoot people or become murderers, but it's like, you know more often than not that like that's what happens like in hollywood like you get used for, for for as much as you get used and then you you're tossed away it's, that's just how it is um 
Yeah, and then again, we talked about it earlier, but it's also a kind of a condemnation of how they treat the writer. You know, that here's, here's a guy who was working for the system, and they chewed him up, and they spit him out to the point that he had to sell himself out, and it, him selling himself out led to his, you know, metaphorical and actu- and literal demise, you yep. know? Um, and, you know, you have Nancy that is, represents, like, the pure and the good, and the idealism of being a good screenwriter, and you had you have Joe who represents like the the sellout and the 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 uh, the cynic, the cynicism of being a screenwriter. Right. Um. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the legacy, unless you have any other final kind of notes or or, or about or themes about the film. I mean, not really. I mean, I know uh, in one of the documentary features, like Nancy Olson talked about. You know, basically, when talking about this film, you know, really, it, at its core, it's about opportunists and the consequences that come to people like that. You know, you talk about how, like, the, the character of Joe can be considered an opportunist. You know, like, as we talked about, he's basically selling out. Um, you know, Norma Desmond is considered an opportunist for using Joe. Like, when, when she, and, you know, and there's, like, there's, and it's almost kind of given the illusion that, you know, the whole town of Hollywood is filled with opportunists. But at the same time, like when you have people like that, you know, the consequences can be dire. Like it's about opportunists and the consequences that they have to live with, with their decisions. So it, it put, paints, again, like we talked about already, it paints a very grim tone of Hollywood and like what it stands for. So obviously it, it's kind of a no brainer how, you know, some people would react to that, especially in the business, which I know one of the guys they were talking to said that's probably the reason why it didn't win Best Picture, because it really kind of, you know, you know, I, I would like to talk about a fourth perspective that when it comes to Oscar time, like Hollywood loves movies about themselves and they'll give Best Picture. They'll give, you know, they'll reap all this acclaim to movies about themselves, but not this one because it was taking a, a bad look at Hollywood. So they, they could, you know, kind of theorize that that's probably why it didn't win at the Oscars, because it was about them, but in the bad, making them look bad. Right. Um, well, the film did go on to receive a lot of critical claim. Excuse me, a lot of critical claim when it was released. Um, it uh, was nominated for eleven Academy Awards, like you were just talking about. Uh, it won three, um, and they were kind of the quote-unquote minor ones. It won story and screenplay, art direction, and. Uh, Musical score. Um, it was nominated for Best Picture and Best Director and Best Actor for William Holden. Actress for Gloria Swanson, Supporting Actor for Stroheim, and Supporting Actress for Nancy Olsen. Um, and as we talked about in our last episode for All About Eve, um, Best Actress was really swamped that year because it also had Ann Baxter from All About Eve and Betty Davis from All About Eve. And if it wasn't for all three of those... And they end up going to Judy Holiday um, for, <laughs> I think it's called The Bad and the Beautiful. Um, uh, Born Yesterday. Born Yesterday. I'm sorry. You're right. It's the Born Yesterday. Um, uh, for Born Yesterday. And if it wasn't for the fact that all three of those split the vote, it probably wouldn't have gone to her. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot. What movie do you think is better? And what performance do you think is better? Ooh. <laughs> Uh, that's that's a good question. Um, 
because both are really good. And I, I mean, last episode I talked about how like All About Eve was like one of my first like forays into like you know classic Hollywood, and uh, it was one of like the the first kind of like movies from that time period that I actually kind of delved into, and I just completely fell in love with. So I guess kind of on my um, just nostalgia for it from seeing it for the first time and just completely being enamored by it. I'm going to say all about Eve, but it's like, you know, especially with this recent rewatch I had for Sunset Boulevard, it really is a coin flip kind of thing. Um, but I think for, for me personally, all about Eve just gets the slight edge just because of like just as much as I love Sunset Boulevard on the on the first viewing, like all about Eve, I was just complete. I completely fell in love with all about Eve the first time. And I, I, that feeling is just never worn off. Yeah, um, I'm going to split it. I'm going to say that I think Sunset Boulevard is the better film, but I think Glory, uh, Betty Davis gives the better performance. Right. Even though I think Gloria Swanson's great, it's almost a little too out there, mm-hmm. whereas Betty Davis is definitely a broad performance, but it's more it's more believable, yeah. you know? Um but I still think I prefer Sunset Boulevard as the as a better film. Which is fair, because like I said, it really is a toss-up with those two. Um, but either way, both of them came out the same year. Uh, and uh, they're both, you know, uh, Sunset Boulevard is considered one of the greatest films of all time. Um, it was nominated in the, uh, the first uh, class of movies that went to the National Film Registry in 1989. It was part of the first batch, along, I think, with All About Eve. Um, and on the AFI list, it uh, ranked number 12 on the 100 best movies of all time on the first list. And on the second list, it ranked number 16. So it slipped a couple spots. And then I should have looked this up, but I know that the Mr. DeMille line also made their greatest quotes. But let me look up what uh, where that landed, because I know it's on there. Let me just look real quick. Come on. Okay, all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Landed at number seven of the greatest quotes of all time. Um, And I Am Big ended up at number... I Am Big, as pictures got small, is at number 24. So both those big lines uh, in the top 25. Yeah. Um, And then the other kind of interesting fact, in 1993, it became a Broadway musical. Uh, with uh, Glenn Close starring as the uh, as Gloria Swanson, apparent I've never seen it, <laughs> I've uh, but apparently uh, her performance as Gloria Swanson is like the stuff of legend, um, and like one of like the most like amazing Broadway performances ever. Yeah, they talk, they they interviewed her for one of the the featurettes here. Like she talked about like how when they were trying to do the musical, like the good thing about it was that like. They tried to not be the film because you can't be the film. The film is the film, and the film is legendary. So she tried to really kind of make that her own. And like she, she talked about just how great the character was and just what an amazing time she had making it. And yeah, I went back and read some of the, uh, like, you know, some of, a little bit about that musical. Yeah, I hear like it was, like, people loved it. It was amazing. Got rave reviews. So, I mean, I wish I could have seen it. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that'll wrap us up on uh, Sunset Boulevard. It's pretty much available anywhere uh, on any streaming service that you can purchase on. Um, I just have the standard Blu-ray. There's no 
I don't think there's any like special boutique label that has released it anywhere. I think if there's just a regular Blu-ray you can Not buy yet. up there. Uh, you know, there are some good documentaries that you talked about on this uh, on the Blu-ray. Um, but man, this I feel like this is aching for like a Criterion or like a a Kino release or something. I agree. Or, or, like is they're just it's like one of those films. Like if it, so, Paramount has it. I don't know um, if Paramount has any deals with any boutique labels, but. Uh, like I feel like it's just itching for something, you know, because just like this regular standard DVD Blu-rays is a little. It's almost disappointing whenever you like we get to one of these classic films that just has like your standard Blu-ray release, you know. Yeah, it's seventy years old this year, and yeah. it's just you know like, this and all about you seventy years old. That's that's crazy. Seventy. Um. So let's uh let's find out. What are so we we skipped the uh, random movie generator last time so we could talk about this film. So let's see what our next movie will be. So let's bust that one out. All right. All right. It is going. And what will it pick for us? Okay. I think this may end up being our most recent film as far as like uh chronologically as for this might be the most uh recent film we've ever discussed uh on our next episode we will be discussing saving private ryan all right <laughs> that's a great one it's a great film uh it's a little uh probably the, the i think before this the previous record was uh silence of the lambs in 1991 but now it'll be uh 1998 with saving private ryan so uh that'll be our next film that's awesome that's a great movie so um, before we before we close out, I'd like everyone to please visit the Essential Films Podcast uh, at EssentialFilmsPodcast.com. Uh, email us at EssentialFilmsPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, like us on Facebook and follow at Essential Films on Twitter. And please like, rate, and review the show on iTunes. Um, also, please listen to our other show, Force Perspective. I know we haven't done a, a show recently, but Mark, what do you? where can we talk about Force Perspective? Where can we find it? Okay, well, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at SportsGuy515. And, I mean, there's not many posts from the Force Perspective Twitter, but you can follow it anyway at FP Movie Podcast. Um, we're hoping, you know, now that the movie theaters are starting to come around, uh, we can kind of get back on the saddle and do another Force Perspective. It's been, uh, I think it's been since the Oscars that we actually did a, a Force Perspective episode because, I mean, it's really been since then that the movie theaters have been closed. So there's really been nothing to talk about, but... Um, we're hoping to kind of, like I said, revive the show within the next maybe month or so once things start getting a little bit back to normal with, with the movie theaters and seeing kind of the regular releases come out. So kind of be on the lookout for that. Awesome. So um, that'll do it for us this week. And I um, hope you enjoyed the episode. And until next time, Mr. DeMille, we are ready for our close-up. This is the staircase of the palace. Oh, yes, yes, down below, they're waiting for the princess. I'm ready. All right, cameras, action! So they were turning after all, those cameras. Life, which can be strangely merciful, had taken pity on Norma Desmond. The dream she had clung to so desperately had enfolded her.
can't go on with the scene. I'm too happy. Mr. DeMille, do you mind if I say a few words? Thank you. I just want to tell you all how happy I am to be back in the studio, making a picture again. You don't know how much I've missed all of you. And I promise you I'll never desert you again. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. <laughs> 